Welcome to the Postmodern Art Podcast, a podcast dedicated to giving artists who are wowing the world over the platform they deserve. I am your host, Nathan Raglan, and for today's episode, pop a squat, grab your close loved ones, not that awkward ex, and enjoy a wonderful conversation with a wonderful cartoonist. Today's guest is Dee Fish, a cartoonist, illustrator, and novelist with plenty of works and experience under her belt. Dee is someone that I got to know recently thanks to her webcomic Finding Dee, as well as hearing about her debut novel, Lycanthropy and the Single Girl, and believe me when I say the conversation that we have before you right now, um, it's a fun one. Uh, Dee was a really talkative person, and well, I'll just let you see how that conversation goes out here in a second. If you enjoy Dee, please support her with all the links down in the description below. If you enjoy the podcast, make sure you like, share, subscribe, or follow whatever audio streaming platform you prefer. Leave five stars wherever you can. I see that stuff, and you know I love it. If you want to go a little further with that support, maybe you should consider going to our merch shop at fourthwall.com. Link to that will be in the description below. And right now, until the end of September, you can save 30% off your order from that fourth wall shop if you use the code three years. That's the number three years, all capital letters in the shop today. But now, without further ado, please enjoy the Postmodern Art Podcast. Hello. Hello. There you are. And there you are. (laughs) The haphazardly hung up blanket behind the... uh mess of laundry in my office <laughs> oh trust me i i feel that vibe i have a corner over here that has all my clean laundry that i should really fold at some point um <laughs> yeah we we had a house guest last week so the spare bedroom all the crap that we had kept in the spare room including laundry that was clean but just not really put away like there's a clothes rack and all that got repositioned to right behind me oh lovely so super classy super classy so i'm like let me jury rig something behind me and so i got this thing taped up to two bookshelves and the lamp over my head well on the hopefully bright- you won't tear the uh, tear uh, it all out of the wall <laughs> i'll say well on the bright side at least the acoustics should be good because in fact it has all that soft stuff to reverb the voice off of <laughs> hopefully my lighting is always terrible in here i've i've had That's lighting fine. set up and they all they the best i get is like <laughs> I mean, that'd be perfect, sir. In fact, we're getting inching closer to October. So, but then, no. <laughs> I can grab a lightsaber, maybe, for ambiance. There we go. <laughs> Just get that good vibe, good aesthetic going on. I think that should be... <laughs> you went all out for this. All right. <laughs> Let's get let's get really artsy. Oh, toss one my way. I got it. <laughs> I'm trying to say. Yeah, ooh. I kind of hate that this looks good. <laughs> <laughs> if only I had a way to keep these going for an entire hour without draining the batteries. This and the whole vroom, vroom, vroom. But yeah, that 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 double lighting looks nice. <laughs> I mean, at at least now you can know that if you can, if you want to, you can get some like LED strips on the side of you or whatnot, and that should make it work. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> How are you doing today, by the way? Good. How are you? I'm doing. <laughs> I'm doing phenomenal. Uh, 
It's my brightest one. Hey, yeah, I can tell. Goodness. How many lightsabers do you have? About five, but only three of them are here and working. Okay, fair enough. Understandable. Was it like ever I have a Kylo Ren and a classic Luke? You know what? Fair enough. That was no. uh, that was Return of the Jedi, Luke, Vader, and then a custom. Okay, okay. I was gonna say, did you like go to what was it like the the is one the order online? Or did you go actually like Disney World where they have like the custom one that you can make there? Oh, this one is uh, I think it's Ultra Sabers. I'm not sure. I actually got it at MegaCon about five years ago. Oh, okay. And it was literally, it was like, they literally, it was the end of the weekend and they were just doing a big old sale. So I was able to get like a $200 one for 75 bucks. That's a really it just good had to deal. Be ra- <laughs> it had to be random basically. And I found one that the only thing I cared about was blade color being yellow. Yeah. You know what? Fair enough. That was the only thing I cared about. And everyone's like, oh, is it because according to expanded universe canon, yellow means this? I'm like. No, because yellow was the toy I had as a kid. Ah, there we go. Okay. The, the old the old Wiffle Bat versions used to be able to get at Toys R Us in, right. the, late, in the early 80s. Right. Mine was yellow. Okay. I, I love the, the, the nostalgia, you know, bridging the past and the future together with that. <laughs> yes. Uh Goodness, I can only imagine how much that's going to be coming up in our conversation. <laughs> Well, hopefully a lot if we do this right. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you say right. I say just I let the, go with the flow and we'll see what works. <laughs> There's no really. That's right. I'll say there is no real right way to do my podcast. It's just you're on here and we have a good time. If that's the right way, then I don't want to be wrong. Um, <laughs> that is the only right way. There we go. There we go. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do have a bit of a roadmap on certain topics and whatnot, but also like, I, it's like in the Goofy movie, like, you know, you're the one driving, but I'm the one with the map. All right. And like, you know, yeah, like, yeah, you know, I could probably make a stop along the, the world's ball, biggest ball of twine or whatnot, but we'll eventually get to the destination we're thinking of. Look, we're watching, we're watching the animatronic possum show and then we're going to have a uh, soup soup heated with a cigarette lighter there you go exactly <laughs> uh i'm already excited for this conversation um seriously thank you once again for taking the time to do this this was it, it was cool oh. whenever, it was cool whenever i got to to see your stuff real quickly i knew i need to have you on as soon as possible um so yeah thank you for taking the time to do this you are very very welcome mm-hmm. i say i also got probably give a quick thank you i think it was charles brubaker because i i follow him i think he like reposted one of your stuff on blue sky and that's how i got familiar with your stuff in the first place ah that'll do it yep that will do it indeed (laughs) it's amazing social media actually working to expand your audience (laughs) that makes no sense that's great it's insanity it's crazy talk i tell you i know i know it's absolutely insane do you have any questions or concerns before we get the show on the road uh, language barriers. What are they? Uh, whatever your language barriers are. So if you want to cuss, fucking go for it. <laughs> oh, fucking K. Cause that's like a thing on, on my comics. I always have, I have to always print warnings on the back covers for finding D it says contains naughty language. Mm. Just as a reminder that it's yes, the book looks very cartoony and it's got very cartoony characters and bright colors and kids see it and get excited. And I always let the parents know contains naughty language. So I don't know what, you know, as far as adult content goes, if you're not if you don't want your kids to see see F bombs, this is not the comic for them because right. based on my life and I fucking curse. Yep, exactly. <laughs> you swear like a fucking sailor sometimes, I imagine. 
Fucking A. <laughs> no, as well as I always have like a, a policy when it comes to, to language on this podcast. stuff. If my guest is comfortable with swearing, I'm be probably a little bit too comfortable with swearing. I think it was a, it was a recent episode of the podcast. My mom watched it, and in the comments, she's put Nathan language. I'm like, what? It, I'm just, I'm just... <laughs> English curse words. Exactly. <laughs> All right, D, before we really get going or continue going, I'm going to ask the icebreaker question of the podcast, if I may. Okay. Let's say you get to go to a desert island on your own accord. It's just you along with your thoughts. You get to kick back, relax, breathe. You get to truly enjoy yourself for a little bit. With accommodations, you're not stranded on this island. So it's like a little personal paradise for you more than anything else. Okay. To help make sure you don't go completely insane on this island you could bring one piece of media or one piece of art with you to help put you whatever kind of headspace you want on this island if given this opportunity what would that one piece be one piece of media so that would then not be a collection per se but something contained I, you know, in I, one I, thing I, I could be a little loose with the rules if you want a collection of something i'll allow no, it no 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 I, I like structured rules okay. i like structured rules valid it's definitely going to be a book okay uh hmm the complete calvin and hobbes the complete calvin and hobbes okay okay went to elaborate on why uh, that's what one of one of the two books, at least, because I have the two-book hardcover version. So okay. if I can only bring one book, it would be volume two. Volume so by two. yay thick, it's Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, I never get bored of Calvin and Hobbes. Mm -hmm. well, I can read the hell out of some Calvin and Hobbes. There you go. There you go. Was that it's, like... it's uplifting. It makes me feel better. inspires me to work. Was that one, if I may ask, I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit in the conversation, but was that one of the first comics that really like grabbed your attention on like being a cartoonist yourself? No, actually, um, I did not really – I wasn't reading the newspaper funnies by a certain age. Like okay. I – by the time Calvin and Hobbes really got rolling, I wasn't reading the comic strips very much anymore in the, in the – pardon me, in the paper. Okay. Um, pro probably shouldn't have chugged that Coke just before you clapped. <laughs> um, Calvin and Hobbes is um, – in terms of what I would consider influential – I've got like a, th it's a three stage process. Okay. There is my, which was it? That, that would be the beginning on your side. Okay. Actually, so, no, the other way you had, be... the other way you had it was the correct, there you go, right there. Okay. Formatively speaking, um, formatively, you've got your Peanuts, Garfield, Chuck Jones cartoons, um, Bloom County kind of hovers because I discovered that in junior high. Okay. Um, then I went to art school. I went to the Joe Kubert School for a year, and that's where I really discovered like Pogo and Calvin and Hobbes. So okay. that's more of um, I already knew what I wanted to be. I'd already been drawing the first comic strip that I'd ever drawn for a few years. Um, so that was already formed. That was more of a, ooh, now I'm taking this shit seriously. Okay. And I'm going to start studying it. So that's when I discovered Calvin and Hobbes. It wasn't formative initially. But it was formative in that, like, it was now a, I'm taking it seriously. It was a further reinforcement of this thing that you wanted to devote yourself to. 
yeah, it opened up my eyes to a whole different level to what these kinds of things could be artistically. Um, you know, then the third stage would be the stuff that I've discovered after I would consider myself mostly fully formed. Mm -hmm. um, that's more newer media. That's where things like Bone come in. Um, yes. That I discovered in the mid 90s where I'd already kind of I was already out of art school. I was already I already pretty much had my voice formed artistically. Okay. Um, the the seeds of what it, of where I'm at now were kind of there, and that's when I would discover things um, like bone, um, uh, you know, and then the the more of the quote modern to my brain, modern comics is anything from the '90s on. Um, Valid. Because I anything that I grew up with, my brain cannot accept as modern. <laughs> Um, so the stuff in the eighties to me is the, is more of the classic stuff. Six forties to eighties are the classics nineties up is modern. That's how my brain breaks it down because I'm pushing 50 and for fuck's sake, that's how the only way I can process this and not feel depressed about that last pack. You know, understandable. I can see where you come from on that one, but regardless, the complete collection of Kevin Hobbs volume two, that is your answer. You're locking that in. I am locking that in as my piece of media to enjoy on a tropical getaway slash deserted island that I'm not actually deserted on. That is absolutely true, but luckily you're not deserted there. You're deserted on the Postmodern Art Podcast. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. I am Segway! <laughs> exactly. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> I am your host, Nathan Ragland. Uh, feel free to like, share, subscribe, or follow whatever audio streaming platform you prefer. Uh, check out the amazing merch shop with such beautiful pieces as this. Uh, fourthwall.com just uh, check the link in the description below and follow us on twitter instagram and blue sky at postmod art pod for future updates and guest announcements including today's guest <clears throat> she is a cartoonist illustrator and novelist with plenty of work and experience under her belt including the ongoing semi-autobiographical webcomic finding d and her debut novel like like lycanthropy and the single girl welcome to the podcast d fish <laughs> a little bit of a stumble but i think i did your intro justice <laughs> how are you doing today d i'm doing pretty good and yourself i'm doing wonderful now that i'm getting the opportunity to sit down and chat with you um like i said a few minutes ago or whatnot i only recently became aware of your work but i have been really invested in it just the the look of it the essence of it the the fun uh, vibe that you more or less prevent provide for a wider audience but before i really divulge to the stuff you're making nowadays i want to go back a little bit we've already kind of touched upon it a little bit but i want to know more or less the origin story of d at least as an artist what got you interested in art and web comics in the first and comics in the first place so this story is it's one that's um kind of multi-pronged okay. but i've always loved this kind i always loved drawing i always loved um comics and cartoons what made the leap in my brain was three things okay um three names in particular mm -hmm. chuck jones walter simonson and john ramita jr okay um and they're all the same exact story basically so i'm just going to tell the story from the chuck jones point of view and imagine it's the exact same thing for all those other names um i would love 
watching Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry and all the cartoons that were, you know, on regular TV playing all the time um, in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, These things were staples. It's not quite the way it is these days. You've got to hunt down a Bugs Bunny cartoon. But up until the mid 90s, there was a period before the 90s where or before the mid 90s, late 90s, you could turn on any TV and flip through the channels you do that for a couple of minutes, you will find Bugs Bunny. Mm-hmm. That was it was it was omnipresent, um, and I loved all of them growing up. But what I discovered was, you know, I would watch the the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie, which is a Chuck Jones movie where he literally his style is all over it. All the cartoons are Chuck Jones cartoons. He has Bugs point him out by name with a caricature of his own face. Mm-hmm. These are Chuck Jones cartoons. And I'm like, intriguing. And then I'd see that same name pop up on those Tom and Jerry cartoons. And they're the ones that, by and large, I liked better than the other ones. I'm like, ooh, they're a little sharper in the humor, a little bit more sarcastic, a little bit edgier. And I love the art style. I love the um, slightly more angular designs. Um, And I liked, like with Bugs Bunny, you'd have... You know, you'd look at a Bugs Bunny by, and this is not to defame any of the other directors. Right. I love all the Bugs Bunny cartoons, but a Frizz Freeling Bugs Bunny or a Bob McKimson directed Bugs Bunny, he stands ramrod straight 90% of the time. Whereas Chuck Jones's Bugs Bunny always had his weight on one leg. He always had that little bit of an angle to where the still drawing had more life, um, even when it wasn't being animated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I discovered. You know, okay, so whenever I see the name Chuck Jones, that's when I'm like these cartoons. And oh, crap, there's his name on How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Right. Um, And it had that same style, that same sharpness to the art and the um, that really aggressiveness. Um, And then I'd watch, you know, animated movies. And I'm like, well, the ones that start with Don Bluth were really, really good. What the hell? And I'd go to comics, and um, it was issue 51 of Marvel's original Star Wars comic. Okay. And I picked it up off the newsstand because the cover was so striking. It's Luke on a, um, pardon me, I think a snow planet, and there's an ATST in the foreground shooting at him, and it's a really dynamic cover. And I opened up the pages, and it opens with the sequence where there's an X-Wing that's flying out of control. The pilot's, like, unconscious at the helm. Okay. And they have to stop it with these grapplers that hit the wings. And the wings break off, and it's just flying around like crazy. And it was breaking the panel border. And I'm like, this book, this look, this Star Wars comic looks so much cooler and more. It feels more like Star Wars than the ones I'd ever read before. And that was Walter Simonson. And I'm like, I know that name. Ooh, he drew that really awesome X Men issue where it was the first time Rogue joins the team. And I love that issue. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I was my older brother was reading the Spider-Man books, which at the time was amazing and spectacular. Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. And I could not tell you the, for the life of me who was drawing the spectacular Spider-Man at the time. But John Romita Jr. was drawing the amazing Spider-Man. And that looked like Spider-Man to me. And the other one looked sad. Like it wasn't as dynamic. It wasn't as well. The storytelling wasn't there. Spidey didn't look as much like Spidey. It, mm-hmm. it was stiffer and blander, and the characters were less expressive under the mask. So I started discovering through the car- that car- those cartoons and those comics, comics are made by people. Yep. 
individual people are better than other individual people or you know, more to my personal taste. I'm a people. I could be a people that makes comics. And so I started taking the idea really, really seriously. Um, I started developing my own comics characters and my, you know, and I'm, you know, this, we're talking like 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm eight years old coming to these re- revelations and realizations that this is what I want to do. So the first comics I'm making are clearly just, I've been reading Garfield and peanuts and I'm ripping that off hard. Yep. Um, you know, and then I created what was my, my first and most long, longest running comic strip, which was called uh, dandy. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually it was a web comic starting in 2001 called dandy and company. But I've been drawing that character for well over 40 years now. There we go. Um, and that started because I I watched these cartoons and saw these credits from, oh, this is these are people that are making this. And I could see, like with Chuck Jones, how the style of the artist transferred no matter who he was. You know, even Tom and Jerry, I, even as a little kid, I understood that was not Warner Brothers. That was, I think, MGM for, um, uh, distributed those. Um, and nothing like that looked anything like that from Disney, you know, Mickey Mouse never looked that cool. Um, yeah, it it all came down to me discovering the idea that people actually made these things and it did not, I mean, they've, they've, the names have always been on comics and cartoons, but I didn't make the real connection until I started seeing names on the stuff that looked better to me than the other stuff. And I started making that connection. So that would be the origin. That's a that's a great origin because like you talking about that, I I sort of relate to it in a sense when it comes to like this podcast. You know, it's one of those like I, I discovered these incredible artists or whatnot. I see like this incredible piece. And I figure out the artist behind it. I just go once instead of trying to replicate a and try to make my own art or whatnot. I just try to bring the person on here and be like, hey, your art is incredible. You need to know that. Tell me how you made incredible art. <laughs> Which I mean, I th- I think I'm doing a decent job at just, <laughs> but so far, so far, so good. So far, so good. I I appreciate that like some of those like early influential you know comic artists or cartoonists were like a major insp- inspiration for you and your art as a whole. And I mean, we'll definitely talk about that when it comes to like the style you've more or less like taken up with your stuff. But I'm also genuinely curious. Like obviously, like you said, you know, seeing those artists made that kind of click that you wanted to be like that. When did it for you go from just like a general love and maybe something you want to try to do to a passion and truly wanting to make it your career? Amazing Spider-Man 312. Okay. Um, I was already firmly making my own comics. Um, and it was a thing that I kind of wanted to do, even though I didn't really process that it really was the real deal. I didn't start taking seriously and like, now I've got to learn what I'm doing. It was Amazing Spider-Man 312, uh, an early Todd McFarlane issue. Um, and the cover specifically is um, the Hobgoblin versus the Green Goblin. And the art on the cover blew my effing mind. Okay. And I flipped through it and I had, I had given up on a lot of mainstream comics by that point. I really wasn't reading Spider-Man or X-Men or any of that stuff anymore. I would think. I think the only regular book I was reading at that time was, I think, Excalibur. Okay. Um, which I loved Excalibur. I still love Excalibur. Um, I'd gotten a lot into the strips. I was reading, I discovered Bloom County and was absorbing Bloom County. So that's a definite another one where I'm like, 
So yeah, I'd say again, there's three books that clicked for me in the late 80s and the, the right on the cusp of the late 80s to the early 90s where I really went from being I'm a fan and I kind of want to do this to sh shit, this is what I am doing. Yep. It was discovering Bloom County um, through the book, book collections. Um, I got one at, I think it was a Scholastic Book Fair used or something. Um, I can't remember exactly, but I found a Bloom County collection and I was like, I didn't understand half the jokes in there where they're like referencing like politics, mm -hmm. but that was like it, they ran continuity gags where it would go for weeks and weeks on one basic story. And it was funny and it was sharp and it bit like hell. It was so different from like Peanuts or Garfield, which I loved growing up and I still love. No, no, I got no shade to cast on any of that stuff. I live and die on Peanuts. It's my favorite. Um, but Bloom County hit different. Um, Amazing Spider-Man 312 was like, oh my God, comic art can be so much more complex than I'd imagined. It was right. such, I'd never seen anything quite that detailed. Even though now I realize it's more rendering than detail, but um, Arthur Adams is detail. Todd McFarlane is rendered. There's still detail in it, but a lot of it, the detail is greeblies and little things, not quite as much as like, the screw on a light switch. Okay. That, that's detail. Um, detail to me is, you know, Jeff Darrow, um, uh, Windsor McKay's Little Nemo in Slumberland, where the, you can see the nails in the bedpost. Okay. That's detail. Rendering is all the crosshatching and the shadows and the textures and all that's rendering. Right. There is a difference in my head. Um, and the third would be Kyle Baker's Why I Hate Saturn. Okay. Um, my stepfather was a bartender at the time in Manhattan and a regular person who would go into his bar was, um, a man named Victor Gorlick. He was for years, the editor in chief of Archie comics. Oh, okay. Really, 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 really nice guy. Super nice. I'd gotten to talk to him a few times. Um, and he was a regular at the bartend at the place where my stepfather bartended and my stepfather and him would talk. It was like, Oh, well, you know, they're into comics. They really love comics. And so Victor started bringing in boxes of all the books that publishers would send them when he was done looking at everything. Mm -hmm. And I just was, that's how I got how I think that's definitely how I got how I, um, why I hate Saturn by Kyle Baker. Okay. Um, cause it was in one of those boxes he had in there. There was the, um, some of the Epic reprints of Akira, which were just, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of, a lot of stuff I'd never seen before in these boxes that I was getting as care packages. And that a lot of those things that were late eighties, early nineties. And it definitely opened up my mind to like Kyle Baker's why I hate Saturn. I don't know if you ever read it, but it's a brilliant book. I mean, it's very eighties. It is so eighties. It's, it screams eighties and it's very New York, but I was, I was from New York. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff was stuff that I was familiar with. But like it didn't have word balloons. It had captions under the knew that was going to come down. <laughs> At least it brightened up the room a little bit. <laughs> and of course, the one thing it's revealing my laundry, <laughs> not laundry. That's hung up clothes. We just don't have a lot of closet space in our house. That's, don't that's judge fair. me, viewers. Hey, don't this, judge hey, me. Hey, this is a judgment free zone here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and if the people judge, why? Come on. I mean. For God's sake, I'm recording this in my bedroom too, okay? 
Um, hopefully the rest, hopefully this doesn't bring the two bookshelves in on me. That, <laughs> it, if it does, that'll be the Twitter clip. <laughs> I'm nervous now. But yeah, um, Why I Hate Saturn was is a wild, wild comic. And it's very much that slice of life, like, the, there, you don't even know there's a plot until halfway through the book because it's just following wow. this character Anne Merkel through her life. And she's this kind of misanthropic writer living in New York, writing for a sh- magazine she hates. Okay. And bemoaning her her life not being what she wants it to be. And I was one of those things where I was just like, I was just now a teenager, just now starting to be like, you know, my despondentness was starting to set in and I so clicked and connected to that book. So yeah, those three books were the ones that made me go, oh, this can be more than just a fun thing I do other than seeing the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I started taking it seriously. I started learning, oh, okay, you pencil it first, then ink it and then erase that. And it looks so much better and you make it big and then shrink it down i didn't know any of that crap okay i just thought comic i thought comic book artists were fucking magic i'm like how on earth did they get their lines so tiny no because this peanut strip is this big in the real world schultz were huge ironically i was i've been shocked to discover calvin and Hobbes. your average daily was only about yay big i know right one that big but you know like if you look at like pogo um I just recently went to uh, the Billy Ireland Cartoon Museum in Columbus, Ohio for a visit. I've never been there and I desperately wanted to see it and got to see all these up close. A lot of these originals and like the peanut strips are huge. Calvin and Hobbes, not so big, but Pogo, Pogo is like two computer screens on in a frame. The I saw an original Dick Tracy, which I've been inking Dick Tracy for about a, a couple of months. I've been doing it about twice a week in the newspapers, um, which is uh, huge but like original dick tracy was something like a movie poster sized piece of art it's massive like 24 by 36 on a board no wonder that stuff looks so clean yeah, I know, they're right? shrinking it down 80 percent to get it into the newspapers or the comics that's insane um you know McFarlane, when he was doing Spider-Man, was working originally. He was working 11 by 17 on Amazing Spider-Man, but when he went to the adjectiveless Spider-Man in 1990 or 91, I can't remember exactly. I've got that art book where it's the art of, where it's print ups one to one from his original pieces. He was doing those pages twice up. So imagine taking two pieces of comic book yep. board and sticking them together. That yeah, honestly, that makes sense, especially some of the details you can get with some of those Spider-Man comics, and and like you were talking yep. about. <laughs> It was like 17 by 22 pages. Jesus. And I know Eric Larson's been doing Savage Dragon like that on on double up boards for a while now as well. And you just get so much more detail. I mean, it takes that much longer. But if you're working on paper and you really want to get that level of detail, it's kind of the only way to do it is working really big and then shrinking it down. You know, and then you got to learn, okay, well, crap, what line is going to vanish? You got to do a lot of practicing and trial and error with that because you do those really fine lines and shrink them down 65 75 percent they vanish they just go away right i mean there's a <sighs> sorry you're good i ramble no no hey this is a <laughs> podcast it is meant for rambling all right like the ramp the, the more you ramble the better that means longer watch time probably get some more ads in there especially for the youtube version or whatnot <laughs> yeah you'll get plenty of ads then i am notorious for people that i've on podcasts with where it's just like 
Okay, D, and also remember, shut up every now and again. <laughs> well, uh, uh, and I'm just, I'm just like, no! Let me put this in perspective. The longest episode I've had for the podcast so far has been over three hours. I think I'll be fine with a little bit of rambling. <laughs> okay. I got stuff to do this afternoon, but no, no. yeah, we can, we can ramble. <laughs> well... I'm glad that, you know, you, especially you were rambling on all these different influences, especially all this like comic history. When I can only imagine how much that truly like enriched you, especially after you truly got into this field, especially starting off with your own personal comic that you eventually made into a web comic, which was Dandy and Company. Now I'm curious, how, yes. how did the concept for this, you know, cute little comic that you came up with, how did it come to be? Um, like I said, really early on, it was what were the comics that I was enjoying? And it was Garfield and, and Peanuts were the, my two favorite comic strips. So they're basically about people and their pets. I had a dog so I could do comic strips about dogs. Um, but I also really loved Bugs Bunny. And I loved at the time, like Woody Woodpecker. I loved the smart ass characters. Yep. Um, I loved the pranksters and the trickster types. So... I started with, you know, it was kind of a, I always refer to it, you know, it was, it's a dog and his boy comic. Um, and I loosely based the kid kind of on myself on this early photo of me where, um, uh, my mom, I was at, uh, I think I went to Washington DC and no, my grandparents dressed me up in this outfit where it was like red and white striped hat, a red tank top with white stripes on it and red and white striped shorts and pants i looked like a barber pole <laughs> and so i just made it red and yellow and that was bernard who was the like the token little kid in the comic um and it was this ridiculous like okay well let me just do little stories about kids at play basically um very much what calvin and Hobbes would end up being um and you know i was developing this at, starting in 1982 and I was in grade school, I was in like second grade, um, drawing this goofy little dog character because I wanted to make my own comics. And I would put it on um, little manila envelope, manila file folders. I would draw the first one on. I still, first one is still hanging up on the wall back there, dead name oh, and all. Okay. Um, and my um, second grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Bernstein, put it up on the bulletin board. And she started putting anyone, everyone that I drew up on the bulletin board. And that fueled my fire. I was, <laughs> oh, that was the first time I, you know, I am an, I'm an, I'm an introverted, shy, dorky kid, uh, not yet out trans, but already knew. Okay. So it could not be more like unaccessible to the rest of the, so suddenly I'm drawing these comics and people are like, that's funny. People are actually talking to me to say something other than make fun of my last name or something, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I was getting positive attention um, and stuff like that. And so I kept at it. I, I was doing, you know, old dandy strips and most of them are lost to time. I mean, very he looked like Snoopy. I was just drawing a bad <laughs> Snoopy where my teacher was like, this is just Snoopy D. You might want to, you know, redesign it. So I redesigned him a little bit. Um, made him brown because my dog at the time was a little brown terrier named Toto. Mm -hmm. um, I gave him like a little bit of a Woody Woodpecker pompadour because I liked Woody Woodpecker. Um, and made that orange because that was the colors I had in the marker box. <laughs> 
not that elaborate and just went from there and he's been evolving since 1982 um i started doing that um when i was in junior high i did a whole bunch more strips that were god awful um <laughs> hey we all got stuff and, somewhere uh, oh yeah oh yeah um and when i went when i went to the cubert school i'd been playing or i'd never stopped drawing the character okay but i'd kind of not really been drawing him regularly for a couple of years mm-hmm. and i went to the cubert school um for one year and when i was there um i really took to the humor classes where we were doing humor comics and learning about all the different ways to do humor comics and so i just kind of dusted him off as a character and used him in pretty much every assignment um used him or the extended characters that i'd created over the years um so if you know and i was one of those kids that the you know the other students couldn't fucking stand because the teacher would be like okay we'll do one sunday style strip that's your homework assignment or do three dailies i'd come back with two weeks of dailies and four sundays because i went (laughs) i was the i was the asshole going nuts You know, in my, I had an animation class and we had to do a test demo of a hand picking up a block. That's all we had to do. I did a one minute long gag cartoon of Dandy being attacked by a block. (laughs) It was going to get filmed. It was going to get put under the the test camera. I was, I still have the video. It's behind the curtain. Okay. (laughs) Um, so I was obsessed and I suddenly found this incredible passion. And that's when I started getting. Fair. That's when I started learning about a lot of these other things. I learned about Calvin and Hobbes. I learned about Pogo by Walt fucking Kelly. Mm-hmm. And I had never, I don't know if you've ever seen Pogo, but when I saw Pogo for the first time, my brain exploded. <laughs> I had never seen a comic strip so lushly illustrated and beautifully cartooned before. It was the most stunning thing I'd ever seen. I was like, and a lot like Bloom County, I was like, I don't get these political references and I don't know what they're talking about. I think that's Khrushchev, but I'm not sure because at the time I was 19. Right. And I really didn't know much about Khrushchev except for the Robin Williams bit about him with the shoe. <laughs> I was like, this is not my shoe or something like that. Right. I think it was a Robin Williams bit. Um But yeah, so I started studying these other cartoonists and I wasn't reading them anymore. I was studying them now. I wanted to see what the original art looked like. I wanted to see where they were using whiteout and because I was starting to become aware of that. My teacher would bring in comic strips that he had done. He had worked on the comic strip Dondi, ironically. Um, And we we would laugh about that because my character had been named Dandy since 1982. It wasn't like I named it in honor of my teacher. Right. Um, But I did an entire book's worth of material while I was at the the Kubert school. Um, Dandy would pop up in every one of my classes at one point or another to where a lot of the students were just like, oh, that fucking dog. But a lot (laughs) of the other students were like, I also had other students that were like, hey, I'd love to get copies of that. Um, They ended up on the bulletin board again. And I had third years that were like, oh, that was a great strip. I loved that. And I was just like, I was riding high. I had other cartoonists that were like, oh, this is really good. I really like this. You know, you definitely should pursue this. Look at you, D being um, the overachiever over here. 
Oh yeah, I was uh, definitely the overachiever. Um, I ended up transferring to a animation based school that was in Florida for my second year and going there for a couple more years, but I was still doing dandy stories. Like I'd go home and I would draw, you know, oh, let me try strips. Oh, now we do short stories. And mm-hmm. um, I'd go to like Staples or Office Depot and hard use the copiers and, you know, put together a little ash can book. And, you know, you get them, you get them bound and, you know, I make a copier or two for a couple of friends who were, who liked it, stuff like that. Nothing fancy, but you know, my brain, I'm publishing, you know, my little zines. Um, and when the early two thousands rolled around and I stopped hating computers as a general rule, I discovered web comics. Um, I was one of, I was a very long held out of, uh, computers are evil. Eh, I was one right, of those assholes. Yep. yep. Um, I was definitely one of those assholes, um, very resistant. But when I finally discovered like comics were on the internet, people were distributing them on the internet. It wasn't just pitch the syndicate and collect your, collect your stack of rejections. I had a few, um, you could go directly to the internet. I discovered, uh, Scott Kurtz's PVP, Mm -hmm. um, a couple of other strips, um, uh dana simpson's ozzy and millie i discovered which premiered not too similar around this not too long i think a little before me a few other strips that i was like oh this is cool um and so i said okay i'm gonna try doing this what the fuck um and i'm gonna do dandy and so i scanned in all the work that i had done from cubert so from from 93 to, at that point, 2001, I'd made Jesus. six books worth, worth of dandy stuff. It's currently now in a collection that's this thick. <laughs> um, which I, which it's, it's Dandy and Company, Volume Zero, Unhousebroken. The, but that is canon. That is the continuity of the online comic begins with those stories. And so I, I use them to build an overnight buffer. Um, while I was building an actual three-month buffer of strips. Right. Which at the time I was committed to making these as much like a real comic strip in the newspaper as possible. It ran seven days a week, color on Sundays. I followed the structured format of color strips with throwaway panels for the first two. You know, all I was following the format that I knew from some of these behind the scenes art books on like um, Calvin and Hobbes and Peanuts. I'm like, oh, there's a way they do this. That's on purpose. Ah, mm-hmm. ha, ha. I can do that too. Because, you know, in my brain, I'm like, aha, the newspapers are going to see how awesome I am and they're going to snatch me up like a blur. And boy, did they not do that. <laughs> okay, not not 100% true. Two small local papers actually did pick up Dandy. Well, there you go. Um, For a very brief time, I was running in two newspapers and I could not tell you where because that was 20 years ago and I, I don't even know what I had for lunch Tuesday. Um. <laughs> But yeah, for uh, for years, I was doing Dandy and Company online seven days a week until life started to get a little too busy. And then it became three days a week and th- or, or four days a week and then three days a week. And then eventually it just kind of teetered off. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was doing that regularly for years. I had... I think my peak standard amount of readers was something like 80,000 fucking people were reading it. And it kills me that I let it kind of die on the vine before Patreon became a thing. Ah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, crowdfunding had not yet figured out how to happen. 
when I burned out on the strip. Um, I uh, went through a divorce and that killed my passion for it for a while. And I switched switched gears to a different comic. Uh, it was a graphic novel I did called The Wellkeeper. Um, you know, I don't have any regrets on creating The Wellkeeper. I have regrets on walking away from Dandy and Company and worse, letting the website lapse. Oh. Yeah, I lost my archive. I kept the URL, but I lost my archive on this, everything. Um, so when eventually I did come back to it in 2014, I came back to it as a weekly and I was never able to bring that audience back with me. The people, so many, to this day, there are people don't even know I came back for about five years. Oh, wow. So I am bringing it back again. Um, I'm going to be launching it on my Patreon at first, and then I'm going to be reprint, rerunning the original series, like remastered starting next month. Hey, there you go. Yeah, so I'm like, you know what? I've got a decade's worth of comic strips that I did that a lot of people don't even know exist. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to repackage them so I can do new book print versions that are kind of cleaned up. Like, for example, that I have strips where my now ex-wife was in them. And I'm like, fuck, I don't care. I'm George Lucas in the fuck out of these things. I'm not putting Jabba <laughs> the Hutt in them. I'm not putting Jabba the Hutt in them, but I'm cutting out the things I don't want to see anymore. Like my old name. Yeah, valid. Or caricature, car caricatures of my face pre-transition. Those strips don't need to be in these new versions, and I let people know that. And both, most everyone's like, that's fine, cool. I just want to see the, the, the stories. Yeah. So I'm like, let me do this. It's a way to, you know, the characters, um, you know, within a couple of years, it'll, I think within three years, it'll be the 25th anniversary of the online strip, and I want to have a presence again with the character. Yeah. I'm not quite ready to go back to drawing the strip per se. I feel like I kind of moved on from that a little bit. I kind of, I told, I gave him a definitive ending. I put the strip to bed in a way that I'm happy and satisfied with, but I'm also greedy. I want to see those characters out there again, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you really should. I mean, especially with just what you talked about right there, the history that, and like the, the amount of, passion and love that you put into that strip for years on end like kind of seeing that more or less come back to fruition and people sharing that love that they had you know whenever you first had it especially at its peak like years ago like i can only yeah. imagine how important it is for you kind of to you know especially how should i word this like again you have a lot of history with this and there's a lot of yeah yeah dan dan Dandy and Bernard, the two main characters, are 41 years old. <laughs> the continuity of the webcomic began 30 years ago in 93 when I was at the Kubert School. So right. that, that ongoing continuity went from 1993 to 2018. Exactly. The webcomic web is 22 years old. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of history and a lot of material. Like, I've got two collections that i call the dog pile collection it's the entire series in two big ass books and it's like 550 pages and 700 pages each Good lord and, that is a lot <laughs> and that's and that's not including the after that book which was is this one which is 225 pages and this is all of the weekly full page strips right right so this is about 220 strips from 1914 or from 1914 from 1914 <laughs> whippersnapper con starnet my web my my victrola strip 
Back in my back in my day, we had to write our strips out with a quill and ink. <laughs> Not that long ago, technically. I, I, I know, and a lot I of know. people still do that. No, I know, I know, I know. But back. To I have done that. Fair enough. <laughs> but back to what I was originally trying to get. Like, obviously, like a lot of what you're doing nowadays is very rooted with that Dandy and Co. Like, without Dandy and Co., yeah, I mean, you probably wouldn't be as much of the artist like you were. You are today. No. Exactly. That's, I mean, when people tell me, oh, you're really fast, do a daily strip. You get fast. Yep, yep. <laughs> do a daily do a daily strip when you still have a day job. Oh, yeah. I, and you'd also like to have a social life. Yeah, you kind of Or the illusion to... of one. <laughs> you learn to pick up a few tips and tricks here and there along the way. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, Finding D wouldn't exist without Dandy and Company either because Finding... I did appear as a semi-regular supporting character as the cartoonist in Finding D yep. or in, in um, Dandy and Company. And um, I think it was um, it's a conversation I'd had, God, maybe 15 years ago with Scott Kurtz at PVP. And even he was like, you know, Dandy's okay and everything, but I think people would probably really love a comic that's just about you. Mm. He's a, he's a, he'd always, he would always say his favorite strips were the ones that I appeared in and broke the fourth wall as the cartoonist. And he would he recommended I try to do something like that. And when I came out, um, all my friends were like, oh, you need to do a comic about this. You need to do a comic about this. Oh, you should totally do a comic about coming out. That'd be so cool. And after about a year, I was like, oh, you, for fuck's sake, fine, I'll do a comic strip. <laughs> and that literally is the first Finding D comic strip. That's the exact first strip okay. is people recommending that recommendation and me going, fine, I'll do a fucking comic strip about my – Ooh, this one doesn't have to be all ages. I can say fuck all I want. Fuckity fuck, fuck, fuck. Because <laughs> Dandy was all ages. So, right, it, and um, I used to get blocked by that from people saying I sh shouldn't bother doing that. And I'm like, well, I want to keep doing that. I was very aimed at a full, at a broad ages group. Right. Um, but yeah, so if I'm, I, you know, I consider the first Finding D strip a Dandy strip where I came out to Dandy. Like he walks up to the drawing board and I'm just sitting there as D and he's just like, something's different. Yep. <laughs> well, but, but was still complain. I'm like, you know, well, I'm not, you know, I, I explain it. And then he's like, okay, fine. But to my original point, why am I not in these scripts for the next three strips? Uh, he was, he's always been a self-important egotistical character. Right. And I, I, so that to me is kind of like the backdoor finding D pilot. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to word it i mean that certainly is and yep. i mean back to my original point when it came to just like uh like dandy with how much history they have behind it i'm genuinely curious do you have a personal favorite moment or favorite strip so far from that you know dandy and co ages oh um i don't know if i can say i have a personal favorite strip like individual strip. I have a few that I could think of okay. that I enjoy specifically um, with Dandy and company, even though it was run as a daily comic strip, I did. I started doing story arcs really, really, really early on. Um, and I came up with this idea in the first year of doing a summer blockbuster, um, doing a, a three month long storyline that would be a big epic sci-fi thing. And um, I got other cartoonists to do um, like poster art, pre helping me to make previews for it. I called it Beanie Quest because 
the little kid Bernard had a little beanie hat with a propeller on it. And I decided aliens were going to steal his hat. And it would become this cosmic quest to get this hat back. Okay. Because the hat was important to the aliens. It's a whole involved thing. Um, Cause it turned out his hat just happened to look like this artifact from their, their culture that granted superpowers to anyone who had it. So Bernard ends up with the superpower hat. And I ended up doing Beanie Quest, the first one. And I did publish that as a standalone graphic novel, the first one. There we go. And I ended up doing three different Beanie Quest storylines over the course of the strip. But that first one will always hold a little place in my heart for being, A, this crazy idea of doing like a summer movie in a comic strip form. Of the big, over-budgeted, hyper-marketed, I made posters, I did t-shirts, I went to conventions promoting the event beyond just the strip, and a lot of, at that time, it was pre-social media, so everyone was all about message boards and forums. Right. And I'd hit, I'd hit the message boards constantly, to, and my readership jumped up like crazy during the first Beanie Quest. And so I did a lot of event storylines in Dandy and I would do like, you know, my, my old apartment, I used to, I'd print out the move, like the, I'd make movie posters for each one and print them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and people would buy these movie posters. It's like, I've never been able to replicate that level of success with any of my other projects or that level of interest. And I've never been able to get people invested in Dandy again to that level, but kind of hoping maybe if I put the older material out there again, and make it available to people to see. I'm going to put on Patreon first, and then maybe after a month or two, I'll start running it on the old website. Smart. But try to entice people over to the Patreon with, hey, here's some stuff that you may never have seen. Um, if you'd like to see these characters returning, this is the way to make it happen. Make this successful, and that will tell me there's a market to bring the characters back. For, say, I don't know, their 25th anniversary. Just a thought. Just putting it out so, there, people. <laughs> Just put it out there. And the nice part about that is that then I have, um, you know, with Finding D, Finding D being about me and my life and about my life as a cartoonist, I can do promotions for my other projects in my comic strip and it's completely organic. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I, when my first, when I published that first novel, like Anthropy and the Single Girl, it literally was, you know, I did comic strips about, oh, my books arrived. Yes. You know, and... We're going to do an unboxing video. Crap. We have to tape them back up. Um, <laughs> I remember that. You know, me, giving the, me, me giving the spiel to people and drawing the book characters. So I can do this with my other projects and pitch them within the main comic strip. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a perfect scenario for that. Well, if I may transition to that as well, I mean, you kind of illustrated that like Dandy was a way for you to have the backdoor pilot of Finding D, and that's how I became to know you. So I want to jump straight to Finding D. <coughs> like I said, okay. semi autobiographical webcomic that you have developed for years now. Um, when did you start? Like, aside from the backdoor pilot, when did you realize that having a very personal comic like this out there? When did you decide to make that the reality? Like, why? What made you start Finding D? Um, when I finding D premiered a year and a day to my actually coming out, um, I pondered it for a solid year. Um, when I first came out, um, I didn't do a lot of comics that first year because that first year is very much about rediscovering yourself and kind of becomes your life. Um, and 
I wasn't doing as much work during that first year that I'd come out. And, um, but I was writing a blog that I called finding D. Okay. Um, and like maybe five people read it. I don't know if anybody was reading this thing, just a blog, just me, you know, this is what I did today. And, oh God, this happened. And it was so stressful. And I'd write about usually what I discovered after a few months, every blog I was writing was all negative. Everything was about the bad things that were happening. Mm. The, the bad interactions with people at a convenience store, the person giving me the shitty glare, the person giving me crap going into the bathroom. All the negative experiences were all I was writing about. And for some people, there's a catharsis in that. For me, that does damage to me. Yes, Dwelling on the negative of these factors does damage to me it it makes it hurt worse um for some people that's not the case they can get catharsis and they can get like a they can get value out of that i am not one of those people and um so after a few months of doing the pot the the blog i realized it wasn't working and not only was it not helping it was hurting and i'm like okay this isn't good so i needed to step away from that for a little bit. And I'm like, I took that and I took everybody who had been saying to me, what you really should do is make a comic. Mm -hmm. And I considered that. I'm like, well, what, what would I do as a comic? Um, and I remembered I had done a short story after my divorce okay. years ago, trying to channel some of how I was feeling. I only made it eight pages and walked away from it because it was killing me to do this story valid. It was way too, way too dark, way too personal, way too delving into shit. I didn't want to deal with, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to live in it. When I'm doing something, when I'm doing a creative project, I live in it. Right. When I'm writing my books, my werewolf novels, I'm living in that fictional world. Um, I, those characters are rent free in my head and th their lives are replaying until I put them on paper. When I'm doing a comic, that is the world I am in. I am, you know, it's it's a paraphrasing an old Charles Schultz quote um, when he was talking about peanuts, where he's saying, "If if I'm drawing a hat, if I'm if I'm drawing a happy Snoopy dance, I have to be feeling a happy Snoopy dance. If I'm drawing these characters in bleak situations or being tortured or being, you know, all horrible things happening, I feel that." Mm -hmm. And so I knew I wasn't going to be able to be the person who does the comic about coming out that is the, you know, the Craig, Rob Craig Robinson's blanket or Craig Thompson's blankets type thing. I was not going to be able to do that, that deep dive, you know, bare my soul to that level. It wasn't going to be me. I'm not the person to do that. There's a lot of people out there that have done some very, very dark comics about their transitions. And I'm like, I can't do that but I can do comic strips like humor strips. Yep. Um, I, by that point I'd already been doing the one page Sunday strip style dandies where it was a weekly and, you know, it's structured and formatted like a comic page, like a comic book page, but set up like a comic strip. So you got your little headline at the top beginning, middle end, right there on one page. I knew how to do that. And I'm like, maybe that's what I need to do. That's what I do best. It's what I'm most known for, for the 
random amount of people that actually know who the fuck I am. And I realized that if it's a comic strip in the classic style of a comic strip, it's got to be funny. Right. Got to have a punchline. It's got to have humor. I can t- and I realized what I could do was tell these same stories of the stress of this thing or the the waitress that insists on misgendering me at a restaurant and put a punchline on it. Get to the end of that five to seven panels, drop a punchline on it, find the humor in it because if cartoon me can find the humor in these situations, maybe it'll be easier for real life me to deal with them. And so it became less venting and more therapy. I was setting up scenarios where my cartoon version of me was finding a way to laugh at some of these ignorant people in the world. Some of these people who just are just shit. And it did help. And early on, you know, I discovered early on that a lot of the things that I was creating comic strips about that to me felt so unique to my specific experience. And I discovered, no, they're universal experiences. Um, And that's the strip really took a change. Um, It became much more positive, very fast. And much more universal. I've had some backlash from some people who kind of lament that the strip isn't more focused on the politics of being transgender. Um, But that's not a thing that I feel qualified. I'm not solving that problem. I'm not convincing somebody. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get on a platform, point my finger, waggle my finger at some turfs and get them to start seeing things my way. The only way I'm going to get people to ever change their point of view on something is to just show the strip the way I intend to show it, which is this is my life. Yeah. Here's a strip about me and Heidi going to a movie or going to a restaurant. That's what we do. When I'm done with this podcast, I'm putting my pants on and um, my wife Heidi's getting home from work and we're going on a road trip. We're having a date night. Um, Perfectly normal thing that we do every week. We do date night. That's tonight. Um, So the strip to me, very rarely is it ever about direct what's going on in the media. Like I did a couple of strips that address some of the media stuff a few months ago, because every now and again, it gets so heavy that I got to say something. Yeah. I got something to say. And, but more often than not, like the last two weeks have been about creative block me that, that feeling that every artist I know has where they wake up one day and they're just kind of like, why, you no make lines pretty. (laughs) Why you no work? And it just feel, yeah. It just there are days you feel like all of a sudden you, uh, shit. I forgot how to draw. <laughs> and so I did a couple strips about that. Um, we did a bunch of uh, we went to a bunch of concerts over the summer. So the next month of comic strips are going to be about, you know, I'm calling it Heidi's summer concert series right. because Heidi loves music and she loves going to concerts. And we had a bunch of experiences that are absolutely worthy. Um, you know, I went, picked up some fried chicken at this one local place that does fried chicken, but they don't know what they're doing. Like their, their food is good, but their service is atrocious. Uh, And I don't quite know exactly how, but I don't know exactly how, 
But spoilers for an upcoming strip. I'm sitting there on my phone sharing memes with some friends, and I smelled smoke, and I looked over. My bag of food was on fire. <laughs> okay. I have several questions. <laughs> how, did, how did a bag of macaroni and cheese light on fire? I do not know. But it did. And I literally, I looked at it. I'm like, Uh, excuse me, excuse me. My my dinner is on fire, uh, on fire, and the the employee at the register because it's like it's a gas station that has a fried chicken place uh, in it. Okay, but the people but the people that are making your fried chicken are just the people that work at the gas station. Right, and they the three people that work there just kind of went like, huh. <laughs> They were moving like the sloth at the DMV in Zootopia. <laughs> but with no recognition. And so I'm like, this is this is at least two strips. Yeah. Because my food spontaneously combusted. I don't know why. I wish I'd taken a picture because people are never going to believe this actually happened. But that's what the strip is. Yeah. When weird shit. I, I did a random strip because I went at the Target one day. and I'm in the bathroom at the fucking um, paper towel machine going like this. <laughs> yep yep uh, oh it's a, it's a crank mm -hmm. this is not an automatic one i sat there for a few minutes you know and i'm like okay this is a strip and so that's kind of what finding b is it's just this little window into our everyday lives sometimes it's about like when i had a shit ton of drama when it came time to legally change my name that was an eight week storyline oh, because that imagine. had to be told you know, I had one person at the uh, clerk of courts who was blocking me at every conceivable way, using every little trick they could to try to make this process impossible for mm -hmm. me. I had to do a series. I had to do a series about that. Um, and so that is Finding D. Um, unlike every other project I've ever worked on, I never planned Finding D. I just started drawing it. Okay. Um I never sat down and came up with model sheets for myself, Heidi, or our dog. I just started drawing us. And to me, from an artistic standpoint, oh my God, can you tell? I look at that first year of strips and I'm just like... <laughs> you you can tell the more it progressed how comfortable you kind of got with how you wanted to draw yourself. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, and it's, it's streamlined now. These are, uh, there, we are now cartoon characters. They are simple line work, easily repeatable, um, very broad and cartoony. And yet, like, cause I've had people sit there and say to me, Oh, why do you draw Heidi like this? I expected her to have this big, long nose. And it's like, no, she just has a straight nose. It's just gotten straighter and straighter as the strip has progressed. Mm -hmm. But the reality of this is, um, as weird as it is to say, we've been recognized. Oh, wow. I have on at least three occasions been recognized by random people. Um, once, at, once at a comic convention that I was just attending as a person. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, people have been like, oh, my God, are you? I was at another person's table picking up a comic book and the person behind the counter is just like, I'm like, hi. Uh, 
She's like, I'm sorry, you just look. Are you D? D fish? And I'm like, D fish and Heidi. And she fucking exploded. <laughs> and what sucked is that her husband's a friend of mine. Um, we both do comic strips. Okay. And he's trying to, he's doing his spiel. And she basically shoves him out of the way to come out from behind the table to talk to us. Aww. Um, But we've been recognized. So I'm doing something right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I imagine you're doing something right, especially with, like, the stories you are telling. Like, you know, you, you were saying, like, for example, with the mac and cheese story, like, yeah, no one's going to believe this. But let's be honest, we all have at least one story of something ridiculous like that. Like, we all have those stories of, like, no matter how I tell this, no matter who I tell it to, no one is going to believe it. And there's, like, you know, yeah. whether it be the overly complicated stuff that you've had to deal with or just the simple mundane stuff, like dealing with a spider in your bathroom or something along the lines of that. Like, yeah. we all have that experience. That's one of the things I love about your comic you know, like how personal it is. Like I, I'm wondering for you, like certain fact that this is you telling your story. Is it easier or is it harder for you to be able to tell this story compared to some of the other stories that you've told before? Um, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column, column B. Um, part of the problem that I have is that because it is my real life, um, like anyone who reads Finding D has noticed a remarkable lack of supporting characters. It's me, it's Heidi, and it's our pets. Um, my friend Sabrina appears in it occasionally. Um, I, she writes the comic strip Giant Girl Adventures that I illustrate. Um, but that's about it. A couple of other people. Um, my stepson Rick has been in it a couple of times. But I made a couple of jokes and I could tell he was getting bummed out. So I just kind of wrote him out. I miraculously just simply stopped having him appear because he wasn't liking the way some of the jokes were going. He was a little bit like, hmm, sorry, you have a lot of BO, and that's a source of humor. Um, but, and a lot of people have said, oh, you could totally put me in this strip. You should so put me in this strip. I'm like, <laughs> yes, not now. You know, um, I actually have a strip that, um, come next week that addresses the premise of gags that I, I have written, but will not do in the strip. Um, introducing characters from my real life and then making fun of those characters. I'm not going to do that because I interact with these people. Right. When I go to karaoke, these are the people I hang out with. I'm not going to do a joke that even lightheartedly might be at your expense. I mean, I'll do a gag occasionally at Heidi's expense for fun's sake, but, there are a lot of comic strips where I've just had it happen to me because it's a lot easier to point and laugh at yourself than it is at someone else. Mm -hmm. You hurt feelings. And, and the day I start hurting feelings with my comedy is the day I don't want to do comedy anymore. That's me. That's fair. Um, I don't want to do a strip raging about getting frustrated at work. My boss reads the strip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that'd probably be smart not to, you know mess with yeah him. i have a day job i i'm a graphic designer i have a day job my boss likes my comic strip she has given me permission to put her in there i know better than to do that because <laughs> even if i do a joke about my old boss she's gonna feel bad yeah and she's the nicest boss i've ever had i don't want her to feel bad right and i don't want to lose my job so i can't do a lot of um the strip has become very much just us. Um, 
If we have a negative experience with a rando, I'll put a rando in the strip to be an asshole. But beyond that, um, that's a limitation. It makes it hard to tell some of the stories of things that happen in my life. I can't do, <clears throat> I can't do stories about annoying clients as a graphic designer because some of my clients read the strip too. Right. Um, I can't, you know, I don't want to do strips that are a little too personal that might go into certain specifics where that all of a sudden now people can dox me and all that fun shit. Right. right. Um, so there's, there's a limitation to it also because it's a daily or it's not a daily, it's a weekly. Um, I try to avoid running storylines like I used to do in dandy. Um, dandy. I used to do very complex running storylines from day to day to day to day to day. I love telling ongoing storylines. But a weekly comic, no one remembers the lead in. They don't remember what last week's strip was. And most of my readers are on social media, so they don't have a back button. Right. They don't go to the website and just where you can click back. They read it on Twitter or sorry, X. No, I I um I I, I Facebook, <laughs> Blue Sky, Threads, there you go, Hive, Mastodon. Whirly gig, butt fart, whatever the fucking new one is this week. Um, ma majority of my readers now are reading things on social media. They don't have a back button. So the continuity from week to week is lost on them. So like the concert series, that's going to be about five strips. Mm -hmm. But each strip is going to introduce the idea. We are going to a concert. I am not good in crowds. That's your humor. Okay. Run. <laughs> um Heidi loves concerts. I am emotionally fragile about them, but I like the music. Um I don't like feeling the music in my chest and wanting to throw up from the bass. I don't like the thousands of people surrounding me. There's humor in this to be told, so I'm going to do a storyline about it, but I have to make sure that each one still reads as an individual. Like if you just read that one strip, it makes sense. Right. I try to avoid doing strips that are running running gags too often. When I, I did, I think I, I think I did a five weeks when I had pancreatitis and I had to go to the hospital for a few days. Mm -hmm. There was a story in there, but I also noticed like I, I'll check my numbers and my numbers on the, the first strip. If you got like one, two, three, four strips, the numbers will be like, here's your numbers. And now you're telling a storyline and the storyline is over. So it's not, I can't tell ongoing stories. That's one of the reasons I'm writing novels is because I'm like, I need to tell ongoing stories and I only have so many hours in the day. Mm -hmm. So this story got no pictures. Okay. Okay. And we'll definitely talk about that in a second. But before we jump into that, I, I have to know, obviously, again, you've been doing, you know, Find D for a while now. And it's gotten to the point where, again, like I said, people are recognizing you just from how you draw yourself more than anything else. Yeah. What has been your favorite story to translate into the strip? That one's easy. Um, so 2018, I went to um, Heidi and I used to live in Florida and I had been going to the Orlando Megacon show in Florida since 2002 okay. as a guest, as an actual person behind the table selling comics. Mm -hmm. That was my home show for decades. We moved away. We're in Pennsylvania now, so we don't go to Megacon much anymore. But for two years, we went back. We do a road trip. 
um, stayed with family out there, um, and we went 2017 and 2018. 2017 was for the premiere of Finding D. 2018, I had been doing Finding D for a little while. So I think it was 2018. Whatever it was, the year Wonder Woman came out. So that'll, that will let anyone watching this know whether or, whether or not it was 17 or 18. It's relevant to the story. Right. So we went to this convention, and I am super nervous because apparently at the same time at another convention somewhere else, there had been a big, big gun scare. Mm -hmm. So they ramped up security. Some guy came in as like a Punisher cosplay to a convention with a shit ton of real guns. Oh. Yeah. Not this convention, a different no, one. Right, but the other one. Any yeah. convention. The, our convention, security got locked down there were guards outside the bathrooms and I had just come out as trans two years earlier. Oh, that should go over well. Yeah. I crossed the street to go to a hotel to pee. It took me a half an hour to pee. <laughs> oh, no. Um, the first time there was no place in the building. I said, I felt safe peeing, um, for a while. Um, so a few things happened. I had been asked to be on a panel about LGBTQ representation in comics. Mm hmm. I was like, oh, wow, that's awesome. Because I was um, friends with one of the showrunners and I got invited to the panel. And this panel was going to have Phil Jimenez, um, T. Franklin, a handful of other um, out LGBTQ um, creators. And I was really, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be on this panel. I'm so excited. And so it was uh, the panel was supposed to be Friday. Mm hmm. And I, I'm like, hey, Heidi, I'll be back. And Heidi will watch the table. And I go to the I go to the convention hall and I go there and there's no one there. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm first. Oh, I guess I get to pick my chair. Ah, ha, ha. And uh, the showrunner's like, yeah, the, um, no one else is here yet. Um, and basically, I get there and I find out what had happened. It was the premiere in Hollywood of Wonder Woman that same day. Ah. Uh... Half the panel was invited. <laughs> Phil Jimenez was the headliner of the panel. He is a very popular and known Wonder Woman artist. He was at the premiere in Hollywood. The panel had been officially um, changed to the next day when everyone would be back. No one told me. And no one told the people waiting in line. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, yes. So now I am a tremendously introverted person if you just are talking to me on the street, but you put me in a microphone or you put me on a stage and the performer in me kicks in. Okay. So I'm up, I go up on the stage. The people are already sitting down. I have the biggest crowd of people that I've ever had in front of me and I'm the only bitch with a microphone. <laughs> so. I did the entire panel by myself. Okay. <laughs> um, I had a couple of people that were friends in the front row um, that knew I was going to be there and were super excited, but most of the people were there. No clue. So I'm doing karaoke up there for a little bit. I'm like, Just a small town girl. And um, I'm doing crappy stand-up comedy. Every time somebody leaves, I'm like, Bye, what's wrong? Why are you leaving? Why don't you love me anymore? Please love me. Don't go away. I won't make fun of you. I'm making fun of you. <laughs> and I've got the people that are left cracking up. Um, and I start fielding questions like this is the panel that it was supposed to be. I'm like, okay, so it's, you know, 
I'm answering some questions about the LGBTQ side of it and the representational side of it. And people are fielding me with stupid questions about when media shoves, shoves this content down our throats. And I'm like, by virtue of acknowledging its existence, it's, you know, it's all the, these stories don't have anything to, you know, um, what was it? Beauty and the Beast had just come out and the whole cult, kerfuffle about LeFou being referenced as being gay for three tenths of a second. Right. Well, I don't understand what sexuality has, it has nothing to do with beauty and the beast. And I'm like beauty and the beast, a story built around heterosexuality and a beast man and a woman falling in love. That's sexuality. So what you're saying is you're fine with sexuality. So long as it's your sexuality. Yep. Because I was pointing out, it's like, you know, like, well, these, you know, sexuality has nothing to do with, you know, a superhero movie. Yeah, we'll tell that to Peter and Mary Jane or Peter and Gwen Stacy or Captain America and Peggy Carter or Batman and Vicki Vale or Superman and Lois Lane. Shall I go on? Because there's a Pepper Potts and Tony Stark. There is a love story in every one of these movies. But none of them (laughs) felt like a weird. None of them felt like they were shoving that agenda down your throat even though they have nothing to do with the narrative of a superhero story but you just don't have a problem with it because it was heterosexual exactly so i'm up there for an hour by myself and i'm telling like and i i even mentioned it's like and they're asked somebody asked well how does it how does being lgbtq affect you as a comics creator and i'm telling some of the stories it's like well one I have an entire group of people who were actually doing a panel in another hall later that day who were bad-mouthing me to the entire industry as saying I was literally doing this as a publicity stunt. Um, a lot of jealous motherfuckers because I had way more books on my table than they had. And they're, <laughs> they're company, they are companies with one book. I'm an individual with 14. Okay, yeah, yeah. I can, I can see where the jealousy kicks in. Just a smidge. And mine sold. But, you know, um, I literally, as a freelance graphic designer, had to take a pay cut within my first year. Ironically, the exact pay cut difference was the actual ind- national standard of women getting paid less. Mm. Just right out the gate. Oh, we don't we can't pay you this much anymore. Um, and then I pointed out the bathroom. I'm like. I'm an invited guest at this convention. I didn't even pay for my table. I'm an invited guest as a creator. And I don't feel comfortable going to the bathroom because they have guards at the door to the ladies room. And conceivably speaking, if somebody in there has a political agenda, all they have to do is accuse me of doing something and that'll stick. Yep. That does happen. That ever, all the other horror stories these people like to throw out there, that doesn't fucking happen. You can go out there and count them. You can maybe find one, two instances in decades. Statistically speaking, that's less than zero. The other shit, fucking mountains of it. Mm-hmm. So I was terrified. And the the thing that I will never forget, and I turned it into the strip, is that the entire front row of women in cosplay was a Harley Quinn and a Squirrel Girl and a doctor, I think um, two or three doctors of the Who variety. And they all were like, when we're done, we can all go and we'll, 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 we'll watch you. And I had a fucking entourage take me to the bathroom 
and basically stand outside the bathroom. So I'd like Captain Marvel and Squirrel Girl and fucking Harley Quinn, like, occupied. And I will never forget that. That was one of the highlights of my life and convention experiences and favorite storyline in the strip because I had to do it. I had to put that in there. That is an incredible story. And I need to go back and find that one because that just, I, I'm already imagining how you drew the other characters as well. So that alone is just going to be a good visual to see. A couple of them were the, cause a couple of them were bait were real people. Cause I knew them. So right. Right. I did, I did represent them in there, but yeah, I had a whole, whole row of women who were like, we'll go with you. So nothing happens. Exactly. And I went and I, peed my heart out <laughs> it was the most relieved and, you've ever felt in more than one sense yes yes uh it, it was very relieving and yeah that was probably my high water mark of experiences and the story that i almost feel like one of these days i might just tell it as a standalone comic book even though i've done it as a strip i might do that as a standalone story in a comic or something because that's my favorite experience in regard to anything that I've translated into the strip so far. Well, if nothing else, you have at least one person that would buy that, that comic in a heartbeat because I would love to see that fully printed and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, again, there it's, I think it's like, I think it's four or five strip long storyline, but that's only about two parts of it is that, but yeah, yeah I, it, but yeah. And then the, the, the real panel did happen the next day and I got to tell my story of what had happened up there and, you know, in front of all these other people now, you know, and it was a little bit different because, you know, all of a sudden I was the, the smallest fish in the sea, in the sea at that version of the panel. And that's fine. Ironic. Um, I still your last name, but... <laughs> no, not ironic. My publishing is called Big Pond Comics for that exact reason. Right, right, right. <laughs> little fish, big pond. There you go. There you go. Well, speaking of publishing and especially with the strip, because like for me, like I since I've gotten to indulge in it, I've only gotten the taste of it so far, but I've really loved and enjoyed it. But obviously I'm getting in towards, you know, the past couple months. And for the past couple months, you have been hyping up a book that you have just recently published your first novel, uh, Lycanthropy and the single girl. Now, yeah, nailed, nailed it. Yes. Thank you. Oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> or thank whatever. Anyways. Um, no, like from what I can tell from what you well. Oh, the sample copy. <laughs> either, <laughs> either way, if nothing else, I'll be sure to have the actual cover like put in the video version so people can actually see what that beautiful cover looks like because I love that cover. Thank um, thank you. But like you know, I I feel like what you were talking about with the Finding D stuff, like in fact that was a weekly comic. Like the one thing you were kind of craving was to tell a, a long form story in a sense. So yeah, was the novel like a way for you to express that and do that? Like how did the novel come to be and how did even this world of lycanthropy even come to be in the first place? Um, the core idea I had in my first year of transitioning when I started getting laser hair removal. Oh, okay. Um, I've always, I've always loved werewolf stories. I've always been drawn to any stories that revolve around transformation um, for some strange reason. Mm -hmm. um, and I had this idea maybe about seven maybe close to eight years ago. Um, I was getting laser hair removal and I had this idea of a, of a story of a woman who is a werewolf who's trying to go on a date. And I just, this is, I just had a scene in my head. A lot of stories just start as a scene and she's going on a date. She brings the guy home. She's a little drunk and they start getting frisky 
and she gets excited and wolfs out and she's like blindfolding him and he thinks she's he he thinks she's into bdsm it, she just doesn't want to get seen and then he peeks and freaks out and runs and she's trying to calm him down while still a werewolf because mm. in my brain i'm like well wouldn't it be funnier if she doesn't lose her personality or ability to function and that's funnier to me okay and that store that scene of a werewolf getting self-conscious over body hair basically was in my head just a scene and it took me a couple of years of that scene living in my head i'm like oh maybe i'll make it as a comic strip or i'll do it as a you know i think i actually had the idea for this as a as a story before i even launched the first finding d strip okay um and so i started conceiving this idea and it just lived in the back of my head this one scene of a single werewolf girl Try, trying to figure out how to date when every time you get excited, you poof out into fur. Um, and nothing had come of it. Uh, and I just put it in the back back burner of my head. Um, well, the friend of mine, Sabrina, that I'd mentioned earlier, we had not yet been working together, but we were friends. She had kept inviting me to write with her on a Star Trek fan writing sim. Okay. Um, I'm a huge, huge Trekkie. So... Um, and we talked about Star Trek all the time and she wrote fan fiction in a, a like a group fan fiction where it's almost like a role playing game without the role playing part. Okay. Or without the without the rolling. Um, where you're writing stories, but everyone is writing their character. Okay. So you create a character and a backstory and you get an you get assigned a position on the ship. And the you know, the captain is the one who writes the overall structure of the story and you play your part. And I created um, this like half Romulan um, helmsman for the starship who has a lot of self-loathing issues because Romulans aren't very popular. Um, they've been the enemy for centuries in Star Trek continuity. So I'm like, okay, I'll have a character who really, really hates this aspect of herself. And she's got a lot of these issues. And I was using it. I was like working my way through a lot of my own issues right. through this character. And but it was prose. It's just writing, mm -hmm. which at the time for me was a lot of this. I'd hit my tags all day long on my phone. So typos galore, especially when you're trying to write in another fucking language, yeah. which I was a lot. Settler, I'd read all these novels that had Romulan language stuff in it. So I'm learning how to curse in there and everything. And I'm like, <laughs> I had to teach my phone so that it would, I'd start entering a couple letters and it'd fill it, fill in the weird letters for me. Cause it'd be all these, apostrophes and mm -hmm. all that shit all that henave um, i can imagine you're probably like trying to text someone something and you accidentally do it in the romulan language and the other person be like oh that must have been a typo likeness like no it's actually romulan sorry about that uh <laughs> yeah oh yeah oh yeah so i got obsessed with that shit i was writing i was in there for about two and a half years mm -hmm. writing these stuff before we finally finished the stories um, basically me and my friend Sabrina ended up being two of the only goddamn people that were still writing. Right. <clears throat> and we would get complaints from some of the other writers that we were writing too much. I was writing tons. I was writing novels worth of stories. Oh man. Just D, on my own. D, D something's never changed back in college. You were doing too much. Nowadays you're doing too much. <laughs> oh yeah. I would be like that. I would be writing my character in the main stories. But in between the main stories, I'm like, well, she's going to have to go back to her quarters and think about stuff. I can write that. Yeah. Or she'll go on the holodeck and I'll write that. And I'd write all these little side stories. And, you know, I had more material. I had hundreds of thousands of words, tons of entries 
with this character in these stories. And I got, when we got done with it, that itch to write was still there. And um, I was literally, I was in the shower and I had the realization that one, sometimes a story just needs one thing and all like you can have an idea, but not a story. The story takes one concept. Okay, you're werewolf girl, still living in your head. Maybe you're going to do it as a comic. Maybe you're going to try. Maybe now I'm saying I could try writing it as a novel because I could mm -hmm. tell so much more story if I don't have to draw it. Drawing is what takes so much longer. Um, and I just came up with the, okay, how did she become a werewolf? Who turned her? Her ex-boyfriend. And yeah. he's an asshole. Yep. And he's and now he's back that was the story he had vanished for a year now he's back and he wants to claim what's his now i have a story now i have a story and i sat down and started writing for um what was it the um that national writing month in november thing that they do and where you're supposed to write like fifty thousand words i wrote the whole book in a month Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, about a, about 180,000 words. I wrote the whole fucking thing. I went nuts. Um, I just sat down and just crazy person. Thumbs of fury. Um, and I once, cause once I had that core idea, then all the other stuff fell into place so fucking easily. It just like butter. Um, and then I just started writing the second one. I'm, you know, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll ship this to, I'll try this with publishers and blah, blah, blah. And I talked to some people and um, the editing, I'm really slow editor. I'm writing, I just released this book two months ago. I'm writing book six. Oh, gee. <laughs> I, I knew you worked fast, but damn. <laughs> I started the series in uh, during the pandemic in 2020. Okay. Uh, November of, November of 2020, I wrote the first book. I'd written the first four books were done by November 2021. Okay. It it was just like I said, it's the editing that's just taking a bit. <laughs> editing. And well, now it takes a lot longer to do the books because now there's a structure. I can't just fly off the feet. Of, I've got 40 characters. I've got lore. I've got all these details oh, yeah. that I have to keep track of. I have an outline I have to follow now. I can't just make it up as I go anymore. Right. So they're slower. They're slower to write now, but, and I'm working with some editors and getting that stuff. I'm hoping to have the next one done by the holidays and out on the, sh out there as well, because we lose interest. People lose interest very fast in series. Um, but yeah, it grew out of initially, and a lot of people have read it and have come back and goes, this is not about werewolves, is it? This is about the trans experience. I'm like, yes, it is. Ah, there um, we go. Because <laughs> one of my friends reading it who pointed out to me, and she was like, well, D, it's good, but there's not really, I mean, there's conflict with this character, with the ex-boyfriend and her anxieties, but... I'm reading this and there doesn't seem to be any downside to being a werewolf in this story. Like it, it, it's, she's not losing control. She's not, you know, because I, I, I kept looking at all the tropes of werewolf stories and that's what I wanted to, I, I, I like tipping over tropes. I'll admit that straight up. Like I, I have a vampire in the book as well. Marishka. It's her, it's her, it's one of her besties. She's a 116 year old Russian vampire mm -hmm. who is very fastidious because I can't stand like, 
okay, why are they constantly drenched in blood? I'm not drenched in cheese when I eat a pizza. <laughs> I'm not like with spaghetti. <laughs> so why are vampires constantly covered in blood? That's their food. They have nice clothes on sometimes. They like to be dramatic. No, I'm just... <laughs> Oh no! Trust me. There's an entire chapter devoted to my my, my main vampire talking about the, about the fact that she she knows she likes being dramatic and that people are like she'll go to those vampire clubs and reveal herself just because people will fawn over her and they'll let her feed on them safely. Consent. Yeah. <laughs> Consent. The sexiest um, thing out there. She people. doesn't. Because <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't drain anybody. They love it. They're like, oh my god, that was the most amazing experience of my life. And then she'll just be like, and now I'm going to let you know you're not going to remember that happened. Are you cool with that? Yeah, I, I'm cool with that. Have a good night. That did not happen. There you go. <laughs> um, but like my werewolf, she doesn't lose control. Initially, it's a long story and a long series. Mm -hmm. But initially speaking, when she transforms, she's just her ramped up. A little more emotional, a little more volatile, but she's not because like, when's the last time you turned on the news and heard about wolves slaughtering an entire group of people for no reason whatsoever? Right. Yeah. Not, not really. That doesn't happen. They're just ramped up dogs. They hunt to eat. Um, so I'm like, well, wolves aren't actually these homicidal monsters. Why are werewolves constantly portrayed as homicidal monsters instead of social animals with a pack structure who like to be social with other animals, mm -hmm. with other ones of their kinds? Okay, I'll write that. Um, alpha wolves, that's super popular now. Oh, the alpha, the sexy alpha. Alphas do not exist. No. The person who coined the term said... My study was wrong, yep. and I am retracting it. So my douchebag boyfriend, who's the one who made her as a werewolf, thinks of himself as the alpha, and he gets that thrown in his face at the end of the book, where it's like one of the characters is like, you know that's not a thing, right? You're just an asshole. So I like to play with these cliches of the narratives of the vampires and the werewolves. Um, you know, um... My vampire takes it very personally if you refer to her as undead. She's like, I am not undead. I'm having a conversation with you right now. My pulse is slow, but it exists. Yeah. Otherwise, blood would be pooling in my feet. Yeah, yeah, you have a pulse. You know, and, and, she, and she takes it very, very personally if you refer to her as undead. She's like, bitch. <laughs> um... So I wanted to tell a story like people are like, oh, so it's a werewolf story. So it's horror. Not really. It's like a it's a dramedy. It's it's there's adventure elements. There are some horror elements on occasion, but it's more of a relationship dramedy. There's got comedy elements. There's a lot of drama. It's a lot of relationship stuff and interpersonal stuff. But, you know, when my fr my one friend was saying you know, I can't help but notice that there doesn't seem to be any downside to being a, a werewolf. And I'm like, no, there isn't. The only downside is the expectations of other that other people put on you. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it a trans allegory. There you go. Nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with being trans. It's just the other, you know, that's. 
it's other people's preconceptions and ideas and what they put on you. You know, I will, I can walk through a store and have a mother grab their child and pull them close because there is a massive media arm that is telling these people that I'm a pedophile. I'm the younger member of my relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that narrative, I mean, it's the exact same narrative that was used against the gay community for decades. Right. You know, they're all pedophiles. Mm-hmm. And it's been disproven over and over and over and over again. But it doesn't matter. The The negative story sticks. And so that's what I have to deal with. And that was where I was playing the narrative. You know, I'm an old school Star Trek fan. I love allegorical storytelling. I love the metaphor, the this represents this and you're not going to notice that I'm talking about this right away, but you're learning something about this thing that you didn't realize. I mean, that's uh, it's it's brilliant more than anything else, especially seeing your story. Like, again, it's one of those I need to at some point purchase the book and read it myself, because like when, from what I've been able to tell from so far, like I was already loving the world and the way you were presenting this stuff. Like, it seems so different than just about any of the other like, you know, werewolf or vampire based stories out there the fact that it's more like a rooted story that just has these fantastical elements to it like that's what makes it a a truly genuinely unique story that if people have not read already i sincerely recommend including myself get the book read it appreciate because if nothing else there's more to come i mean d you just said right there there's six books in the work i mean if 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 just that first book alone just this the sound of the world alone intrigues you, I'd say get invested now. I mean, yep. you just go, it's at havenwolf.com. There you go. There you go. I mean, and obviously like I said, there's more to come with that. I imagine, you know, you said there's more to come when it comes to finding the, the dandy and stuff like that. But I just want to know just in general, like for what you have on your phone. And I even, t- I just realized I didn't even touch upon some of the other aspects that you have a hand in your, your other novel that you had, the, the, sorry, the, the graphic novel that you had, well keeper, the fact that you're working on giant girl adventures, the, the fact that you just dropped casually that you're an inker for Dick Tracy, which I just found just <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I'm just curious that at least with the Dick Tracy one, how did that opportunity come to you? Cause that has to be surreal to work on such a, a legacy character like that. It is. I went out and bought this with my first paycheck. That's smart. <laughs> that was my splurge. I got my first paycheck for inking Nick Tracy. I bought a hat. Doesn't fit my head, but I have it. There you go. But yeah, how did that opportunity to, to ink on Dick Tracy come to you? So the artist on Dick Tracy is a woman named Shelly Pledger. Um, and we have been friends for years from back when I was doing Dandy and Company. And she ran a website devoted to the um, the Warner Brothers animated movie Cats Don't Dance. Oh. She's like the, she's like the number one Cats Don't Dance fan. Oh my! Okay, um, yeah, yeah. Well, you're at least talking to I'd say top fifty right here. <laughs> you probably if you're a top fifty, you've probably seen her website or okay. some of her fan art of it. Massive fan, and I liked the movie as well. And I did a piece of fan art of it for her back back in the day like early 2000s and we had stayed we had met at convent we had met at least at one convention um and we had stayed in loose communication over the years Mm -hmm. um she had become the assistant when joe staten was working on dick tracy because she had a really nice smooth ink line so she helped him inking strips 
And when he retired a few years ago, she took over as the sole artist. So she's been drawing Dick Tracy for a couple of years. And her regular assistant that had been inking a couple of the strips for her a week um, had some health issues. Uh, I don't know the specifics. I've never asked the specifics. It's not my concern. Valid. She needed she needed help. Um, And I do a bunch of gags that I've done just for fun. They're not really strips. They're just finding the art but i draw i've been experimenting drawing them in other artist styles right. so i did one that's like uh Ber- berkeley breathe bloom county charles schultz peanuts i did a jim davis garfield style and really working and practicing to try to figure out not just how but why they make the lines they do with a the way they do and that caught her attention in terms of my ability to mimic another artist's line style so she messaged me and she's like, I, you know, it's not the biggest project in the world. And, you know, it'd be two or three days a week um, that I would need for about a month, about a month's worth of strips. I would need help. Um, so it's not a full time project. You know, it's pretty much run its course. But I've got about 30 strips in the bank. And I was like, it's fucking Dick Tracy. I mean, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, you can talk to you can talk to someone's grandma who doesn't even know comic books still exist, but they know Dick Tracy. Yeah, <clears throat> it's not like me having to say, "Oh, I self-published this web comic, blah blah blah," and pe- watch people's faces glaze over mm-hmm. when you say, "Oh, Dick Tracy." Everyone still kind of knows that it's this been around for over eighty years. It's got this massive history. It's got a movie. It's People know Dick Tracy, even if they don't know, it's still a thing that's been ne- they, they've never stopped running. It's been running as a daily strip for over 80 years, a handful of different creators. And I was like, I've never done. J- I mean, I've for fun, I've inked other artists, but I've never tried to. I've always vomited my style all over it whenever I've done that. This is the first time I've ever had an assignment where the project and the assignment has been you've got to map it, it needs to look seamless people meet reading it daily don't they, you know it's a ghost job my i'm not officially credited as one of the artists on it like it doesn't show up on the byline but it's a thing i it's in my resume and a lot of people know i've done it because i've been allowed i'm allowed to talk about it yeah um and point out the strips that i've done i'm very proud of the work i've done i'm very excited that i got to do this really cool fucking thing um and just it's been a really interesting challenge and it's been a lot of fun and i was still like the first week or two i'm drawing these other characters Mm -hmm. um uh anyone the nitrate the nitrate uh siblings and some of the villains and i was doing um uh, the, 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 uh, the mayor diet Smith. And I'm like, I know the characters I've read Dick Tracy and, but boy, the first day I got to like, Oh my God, I'm going to draw Dick Tracy. <laughs> oh my God. He's putting on his hat. <laughs> and he's using his watch. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was like that. Like the first strip he's in, he doesn't have his hat on because he's at his desk. Mm. And then the next strip he's getting his hats on. And then the next strip, he's going to be on his communicator watch. Yep. The only thing that bummed me out is that because the strip was set during the summer, he was never wearing his coat. Aww. I've never gotten to offic- I've never officially gotten to draw the Dick Tracy coat. I mean, it's at the least only- the hat's in the right direction. 
yeah oh yeah the hat was a lot of fun just like it's like and then trying to trying to make sure that i don't overwhelm shelly's pencils with my my style it's got to look like her style you don't want it to be to where people are going to say somebody different draw that um and that was a really fun challenge and i've been enjoying the heck out of that and i mean yeah i'm not gonna lie there's a bragging right to it um <laughs> i you know i'll um talk to other cartoonists and like oh you're doing oh yeah i can fucking see that that you're perfect for that your line is just smooth as fuck so i was like yeah it's very exciting and it's a lot of fun it's been a very very fun project um I don't know that it's officially over at this exact moment, but um, I don't have anything on my schedule coming up and I've not been officially told if it's over or not yet. I hope not. I'd love to keep going on this one indefinitely. I mean, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, I can totally. It's fun. It's fun. It's real too. It's uh, I mean, it's not in my local paper, but it's in some people's local paper. True. You can go and pick it up and I can be, I drew and draw. I inked that. That's one of the bigger, more annoying things is I'll post the strip and I have to constantly remind people I am not the artist. I am the inker. X, you know, two to three days a week at the most. Yeah. So calm down. I mean, still, no, I'm not the artist. The fact that you've had an opportunity to even work with that character and whether it be the opportunities that you've like created for yourself or ones that others have been able to present to you. I mean, like, you've had a lot of cool opportunities ever since you've really gone down this art path. I'm genuinely curious because from our conversation alone, I can also tell you're, uh, to put it nicely, a very big nerd about a lot of projects and such. So I'm curious, if you had an opportunity to have your cartoonist, tu- cartoonist touch on a certain property and tell a story through there, do you have a dream project in mind that you would love to just like tinker around with? Oh, yeah. Um if I had my druthers to work on any property out there that is not my own, uh, I'd probably be the Ninja Turtles. Okay. Okay. You don't respect. Um, at Marvel, it would be Power Pack. Okay. I loved that book growing up. I loved when June Bridge- Bridgman drew it. I loved when John Bogdanov drew it. Um, it gets a lot of crap. Oh, it's the kids comic. No, it's a comic about kids. It was never in its original run a kids comic. It was firmly in the Marvel Universe, written in the same style as ever, every other book that was there, with these characters dealing with the same level of intensity that the X-Men or Spider-Man were dealing with. Mm-hmm. They just happened to be children thrust into this scenario with massive amounts of PTSD. <laughs> um, and entire stories devoted to the characters dealing with PTSD because... Like, you're nine and you're fighting in an intergalactic war. Yeah, that's not exactly the easiest thing to, to cope with at that young of an age. Yeah. Oh, and your power is when you touch things and get nervous, you disintegrate them and then you can shoot them back at people as an energy ball and you might melt their face. It's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it dealt with some hard stuff, but it dealt with it in a way that as a younger person reading or growing up, I loved the hell out of that book. There's a new there's a new five issue series coming out by um, Louise Simonson and June Brigman, the original creators. And I'm like, yep, buying that sucker. Split <laughs> second. Not even a not even a debate. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I'd say the Ninja Turtles. Uh, I love what they've been doing over at IDW with them, especially um, Sophie Campbell's run as the writer and occasionally artist. They've been doing some really, really unique things that I never would have imagined 
being in a turtle story. It's so different. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that new movie yet, but I'm dying to. I just haven't had the opportunity because we live very far away from any good theaters. Valid. Um, but yeah, I love that property. It's one of the first things I wanted to draw when I discovered the original comics, even before the cartoon. I was obsessed with that. Um, and it's a property that is so open to interpretation and has been done in so many different ways that I don't feel like I would be thrown under the bus by fandom in the same way I would taking over on something like Spider-Man. Right, right. Because your expectations are so different with the turtles. There are so many different versions of them that are out there. Yeah, I was going to say, um, like, they've been uh, they've been a little bit more loose with how they've been able to tell that story, whether it's in the comics or in the animated series. Like, different styles, different character yeah. types or whatnot, as long as you got, like, the main four, obviously. But, I mean, even then, like, some of the stories that they have told and are continuing to tell is absolutely incredible. Yeah. I mean, like it's been incredible to to talk with you so far. It's been absolutely incredible to 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 see all the different you know opportunities you've had at hand. And, so, and like just thinking back to your art journey as a whole, it leads me to the last question that I like to save my artists. You know, you've been deeply entrenched in art in many different ways, many different styles and stuff like that. How important is art, not just for you, but for the world as a whole? Ah, uh, hard for me to speak to the world as a whole. I can only speak from my own personal experience of how art important is to me. Um, I, I believe with art, I follow the, the Scott McCloud definition of art from understanding comics. Art is anytime your expression to the world exceeds the basic functionality of what you need to do. Um, art can be the flourish somebody somebody puts into anything they do um he tells this story in understanding comics of a caveman being chased by a saber-toothed tiger um and how you know our world is devoted to you know shelter like shelter sex and food basically the survival functions almost anything outside of that can be defined as art and he tells this story we have a caveman and i think he's trying he's like searching for something to eat he comes across a pretty girl but then he gets ambushed by a tiger and the tiger's chasing him and he runs to the edge of a cliff and he leaps up and he grabs a tree branch and the tiger leaps past him and falls off the cliff. He, he gets down from the tree branch and looks down and goes <laughs> art. Yep. Um, art is to me, it is personal expression beyond what is needed at any given moment, what, beyond the perfunctory is where art lives. And in that definition, art is the most important thing we have. Art is what allows all of us to express ourselves in any way that we need from the clothes we choose to put on, the way we choose to wear our hair, the way we choose to express ourselves outside of the basic functionality of a machine. Um, beyond that, art specifically in the storytelling mediums, be it musical, be it um, books, comics, paintings, movies, plays. You know, art is how we express emotion with each other and how we put our feelings out into the world and share those feelings with other people on a level that is beyond what we could do otherwise. Um, it's like how 
you can get into an argument with somebody in a text because they don't know what the tone of your voice is. You know, right. you're missing that level of communication. Art is a way to bridge that level of communication. For me, it is a way for me to communicate what I'm thinking and feeling to the world about these different things, be it about, um, you know, with Dandy and Company, I just want to make people laugh. I want to tell this fun story with Finding D. I want to make people laugh and tell this fun story, but also tell my perspective on this unique experience and this perspective on the world in general with uh, lycanthropy. I can tell a more elaborate version of that. I can tell stories about what family means to me and what friendship means to me and relationships and all of these narrative elements are expandable by the nature of art, how you interact with the world. So to me, that's what art is. Art is how we interact with the world. Um, and it's in that regard on a saleable, it is, it's not about the specifics, you know, for me as an artist, my specifics are important, my line quality, stuff like that. But, you know, beyond that, it doesn't, you know, the early finding D strips are very crude by my personal standards in regards to what the later strips look like. But a lot of people who have read them, like when I, we did a color version for Kickstarter last year and everybody in the production that I was working with on, on getting that made were like, they're all great. I don't know what you're talking about. These, I love the cartooning on these. I think they look like crap, <laughs> but because they're emotionally connecting with people, those details that I might obsess over like the line work and it doesn't matter because the, the, the message is connecting to people. And so I'm doing my job. Um, and that's something with finding the, uh, you know, I deal with like a lot of artists and a lot of people. I deal with self-doubt issues and I deal with that fear of of being meaningless, of not being important, of not having an impact on things, of not mattering. Right. And in my darkest moments, I can remind myself I've gotten emails from people, you know, who are transitioning, who are going through a similar journey to mine, who have... found themselves thanks to a gag I drew. I can never pretend that didn't happen. That's so that's a place where my own art has come back to me in a way that I have, I can, I can never say it doesn't matter because I know I've affected people's lives in the positive. That's I've had people, I've had people who have rethought their perspectives because a strip that I drew made them think about something different can't pretend that didn't happen exactly. so art to me is art is communication art is the way we interact with the world and the way we can change the world sometimes one pratfall at a time one pratfall at a time well regardless that is wonderfully worded if i do say so myself d that is all thank the, you that is all the questions i have for you before we do dip i just want to go ahead and say you know yeah, I've already shared you with a whole bunch of praise, but I'm going to share you with just a little bit more because it's my podcast. I do what the fuck I want. Um, <laughs> but ever since, like I said, I've only recently been aware of, I've only been recently been aware of your work, D. But ever since I've really invested myself in it, I have been absolutely amazed with the art style that you're presenting out there, the stories that you're telling, the relatability of all the stuff like that. Like I cannot get enough of it, and I, you know. Even though the trans experience is not something I personally experience, the human experience that I see in your strips are what I absolutely love about it more than anything else. Um, 
I, seeing all the other aspects you've had a hand in work in and to see kind of what you've been able to build for yourself has been absolutely outstanding. But more than anything else, you know, especially now I get to sit here, talk with you, get to really get to know you in the past, you know, hour or so is been is give me a new level of appreciation for what you do. And it makes me excited for whatever comes next, whether it be with lycanthropy, finding D, all these different things. Um, at the end of the day, please, please, please keep up the incredible work because I know you're doing absolutely incredible stuff. And people, if they are not watching it before, if they're not seeing it before, they do need to see it now. So thank you for what you do. Keep up the incredible work. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, if people do want to see this incredible stuff, plug yourself real quickly for the people at home. Okay, easiest way is um, my Finding D runs every Wednesday at FindingD.com, fi FindingDee.com, or FindingDeeComic.com, FindingDeeComic.com. Uh, and the novels can be found at HavenWolf.com. Absolutely. And if you missed any links, I'll have them in the description below. Do you have any final words before we sign off? Cashmere. That's a funny word. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end. If this is your first time listening, I greatly do appreciate it. Uh, like I said in that intro, uh, Dee was certainly a very talkative person, but I mean that in the nicest way possible. Like I, I For those who have not watched the podcast beforehand, I am a person that enjoys when a guest rambles because that's truly like them being passionate about what they're talking about, at least in my eyes. Uh, Dee, if you've gotten up to this point, uh, sincerely thank you for your time. Uh, it was quite the conversation I was kind of hoping for and then some. Uh, you're a fantastic person, and I cannot wait to see what's next with you. Uh, you know, getting guests like D, and especially some of the guests I have planned for the future, keep that in mind, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Halloween. There are some... I'm always amazed with what I've been able to do with this podcast, um, and especially the people I've been able to get on, and the opportunities I've kind of had. Um, I know recently I talked about the fact that we've hit three years with this podcast last week, uh, and I got to check another box off of my bucket list when it comes to this podcast. For those that don't know, I got featured in an article for The Verge. Um, it was, it was a simple article. It was talking about how Apple Podcasts are now allowing cover arch to be seen on, with the newest iOS update. Uh, so if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, you should really check out the fantastic episode art done by D for this episode and check out some of the other ones. There's some incredible stuff, but like, it just makes me so proud that I got an opportunity to have like just a, a, a quote in there more than anything else. Uh, shout out to, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. And I'm sure she'll kill me if I, well, I don't know if she'll kill me, but, uh, thank you. Amrita Khalid for reaching out to me initially and allowing me to be featured in that article. Cause it genuinely does mean a lot. Um, it just shows that for the past three years, I've been working up to something significant. And the fact that I had an opportunity to have my voice be 
considered legitimate among podcast people, I guess. Like, it means a lot. It genuinely does. Um, and for those that want to see it, I'll, I'll have the link to that uh, article in the description below. And uh, support Amrita if you can. Or is it Amrita? I, I'm sure she'll correct me if she listens. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, like, sincerely, this was... <sighs> it's further affirmation that what I'm doing is right. Or at least I, what I feel like is the right thing. The fact that I've gotten to a point to where people are taking my words to heart, it it, it proves that I've been... It, how should I word this? It's more or less an affirmation that for the past three years I've been working up to something significant. This podcast is truly something significant, and I have to thank you guys for it as well. Obviously, like, I can bring a million different people on this podcast, but if there isn't anyone watching or paying attention to it, then what's the point? You guys bring so much love and enthusiasm to all the guests. You guys do a wonderful job spreading the word with every single guest that I bring on. And you guys... You guys are truly the fruit of the labor that I'm putting out there. And I sincerely hope that... I'm doing a good job with this thing. And I sincerely hope that you guys continue to enjoy it, continue to share it, continue to show that love, not just to myself, but to the guests that hop on. Also say hi to the dogs. <laughs> yeah, they hear ya. Anyways, thank you guys for the continued support. Keep up the incredible work on your guys' end and continue to show that love and support, not just to yourself, but to the people within this community.